0: You may have already, but I invite you, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter uh, 10. We'll be in chapters 10 and 11 this morning of Revelation as we continue in this series. Last week we were in chapters 8 and 9, looking at the first six of the seven trumpets. Today we'll see a a short interlude in those trumpets. And then the final trumpet, uh, which sounds at the end of chapter 11, which Scott has already read for us. Uh My beautiful, blessed children keep sharing all of their germs from school, and so um I may cough or or sneeze or sniff in the middle of uh preaching today and so my apologies if that is distracting to you uh pray for my voice uh and my throat if you will as we go along but revelation chapters ten and eleven Antipas you remember Antipas don't you don't you? Antipas was a member of the church in Pergamum. One of the churches that Jesus spoke to in Revelation chapter 2. You remember what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum. Chapter 2, verses 12 and following. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You remember Antipas, don't you? Antipas, this faithful witness in Pergamum who lost his life for faithful preaching of the gospel. We don't know too much about Antipas other than his name and why he died and where he was killed in Pergamum. We we know that he was killed for preaching the gospel. We don't know how long he had been doing it. We don't know the circumstances uh, of his execution. But here he is being commended as, by Jesus as a faithful servant, faithful witness who lost his life for preaching the gospel. To a church like the church in Pergamum, who saw one of their own killed in the street for proclaiming the gospel, what word of hope? What word of hope is there? For churches who have members who are being arrested and maybe taken away and imprisoned, maybe tortured, even killed for their faith today, publicly and in, in dark alleyways and in, and in closed-off prison cells and prison facilities, in places of the world today where Christians are losing their life for faithful proclamation of the gospel, what hope is there for them? Surely there have been countless antipases throughout history. There are anonymous antipases in the world today losing their life for faithful gospel testimony. What, What hope is there for churches who see their brothers and sisters killed for their faith from God's word? Well, I think we have hope for us and an encouragement for us in Revelation 10 and 11. During these seven trumpet judgments that uh, we've seen six already, we'll see the seventh in just a moment, we have seen God through all this judging the idols and judging idolaters of the world. But through it all, he protects his people for powerful witness to the gospel until Christ comes again. This is the word of hope for churches who have brothers and sisters who lose their life, who are arrested, who are tortured, Uh, who are afflicted for bold proclamation of the gospel. And it is the main idea of our text this morning in Revelation 10 and 11, that God is working the great sacrifice of his people to result in the great praise of his glory. That's the encouragement for the church that has an antipas among them who loses his life for the faith, that God is working the great sacrifice of his people, even the sacrifice of their own lives for the gospel, to result in the great praise of his glory. Friends, we need to be made courageous with the help of God to be bold witnesses for Jesus. The promise of his perfect coming kingdom, as we'll see in the seventh trumpet, as it, as it sounds, this picture of his kingdom coming, the promise of his kingdom will strengthen us for his purposes if we will hold on to that promise. So let's look at God's Word. Uh, John continues in, his revela- in, in uh, uh, revealing uh, or writing down what Christ has revealed to him in Revelation 10. Follow along uh, in your Bibles, verses 1 through 11. You'll remember the end of chapter 9. Uh, the sixth trumpet blows, and uh, all uh, there's this demonic horde that is unleashed against the idolaters of the world. And the result of that is that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. John continues, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. "...wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down." Then the voice that I had heard from from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Here in chapter 10, we have an intro to an interlude. And the intro to the interlude that's coming in chapter 11 teaches us, shows us, that God will ultimately be faithful. That's the, that's the point. That's the thrust of this, this vision of this mighty angel and the giving of this scroll and the promise of a sounding trumpet to John. After hearing about those first six trumpets and the final result of God's judgment on the idols and the idolaters of the world, John's attention is now taken a different direction. He sees this angel, this mighty angel coming from heaven, a giant angel, large enough to plant one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. It's an image of having authority over all things. The way that this angel is described was confusing to me as I was reading through Revelation chapter 10 because the description of this angel sounds a lot like, doesn't it, Jesus, the Son of Man in Revelation 1 or even God on his throne in Revelation 4. He's wrapped in a cloud. There's a rainbow over his head. He has a face shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. A little scroll in his hand, like the lamb, remember, who took the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne? He has a a voice like a lion, and there's thunder when he speaks. All this sounds like like a divine description. The question is, is this the Son of Man? Is this the risen uh, Lord Jesus? Is this the one who sits on the throne? Is this God the Father? No, (laughs) he's not. He's an angel. He's not the Father. He's not the risen Jesus. But... The appearance that he has that sounds so much like, that looks so much like God the Father or God the Son is meant to reflect the authority of the one that he represents. This angel reflects the glory of God, the Father, the glory of God the Son because he serves in the presence of God. This is an angel sent directly from the Lord and from the Lamb to John. And when this angel speaks, John hears seven thunders. But John is prevented from writing them down. So don't ask me what the seven thunders are. John won't say. And if I start guessing, we'll be here all day and we won't get anywhere. But the angel does take a a stance of solemn oath. He speaks, there's seven thunders. John's like, hey, I'm going to write that down. No, don't do that. That's not important. Write this down. The angel takes a stance of solemn oath to heaven. And he declares by the one who sent him the one who lives forever and ever, the God who has created all things in heaven and on earth and in the sea, that when the seventh trumpet sounds, because it hasn't yet, when that seventh trumpet sounds, uh, there will be no more delay. No more delay to what? Well, no more delay to the, the mystery of God, he says. No more delay to the justice that the saints have been crying out for, that we heard them crying for in the fifth seal of Revelation 6.10. No more delay to the return of Jesus as he says he is coming soon in Revelation 1.3. No more delay to the consummation of God's perfect kingdom as we were introduced to in the seventh seal, uh, sixth and seventh seals of Revelation 7. When that seventh trumpet blows, no more delay. Everything's coming to its rightful conclusion. But until then, John has work to do. John is told to eat a scroll. The angel has a scroll in his hand. He's told to eat it. It will taste sweet in his mouth, but it will turn his stomach. Now, this is very likely a direct parallel to Ezekiel 3. We know that John, the apostle, loves the Old Testament, and he's alluding to the Old Testament time and time and time again throughout Revelation. Some estimate between four and 500 Old Testament allusions in Revelation. Here he's alluding to Ezekiel, that Old Testament prophet in chapter 3, when Ezekiel was told to do essentially the same thing, to eat a scroll that tasted sweet in his mouth. The scroll is sweet because it's God's word. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But this scroll, when he swallows it, sits in his stomach like vinegar because the word is about more judgment to come. More judgment to come on the earth. And a word from the Lord about a difficult season for God's people. It tastes sweet because the Lord is saying it. It turns his stomach because of the reality that it is presenting. The point of chapter 10, friends, is to prepare John, the apostle, and to prepare the church through John, through this vision that he received from the Lord, to endure, prepare John and to prepare us to endure with faithful perseverance until that last trumpet blows. And in his perfect timing, God finishes all of his work in redemption. Chapter 10 is an intro to an interlude saying, hold on, church, hold on. This morning, brothers and sisters, I encourage us, let us see the wisdom and the compassion of God to prepare His people for what lies ahead. Let's see the wisdom and compassion of God for preparing His people for what lies ahead. That He doesn't allow us to to go on uh, into the future, perhaps for ages to come, until He returns without knowing what's coming, without being prepared for what we might encounter in the world. God, in His compassion, has prepared us for that. Now, there's some wisdom in not warning a child about tearing off a Band-Aid. It's a relatively minor procedure. There will be temporary pain that passes without incident or much lasting effect. There's a reason that, that it's not helpful to say to your kid when they've got a little paper cut, okay, I'm going to take the Band-Aid off and it's going to sting a little bit, maybe a lot, but probably just a little bit, and walk them through the whole procedure and get the kid all freaked out about what's going to happen when you finally take the band Then you take the Band-Aid off and they're like, oh, it's not that bad. Why'd you make such a big deal about it, Dad? Don't do that. Just tear the band-aid off. (laughs) There's some wisdom in not warning a child before just ripping off a band-aid because the effects are going to be minor and not long-lasting. On the other hand, there's much wisdom and compassion in a skilled surgeon walking a patient through a surgery procedure step by step and all of the recovery and physical therapy and occupational therapy and time in the hospital that will be necessary afterward. Because this is a major procedure. There's going to be significant pain involved. Maybe even removal of certain organs or, or implantation of, of new body parts, new hips, new knees. Maybe, a, maybe an organ transplant. The, the, there will be a lot of work ahead and a hard road. But ultimately it passes into a far better future. There's wisdom and compassion in a surgeon and a medical team who take a patient through everything they're going to have to endure. So as to say, it's going to be hard no doubt, but the end result's going to be good. So press through the hard stuff, do the hard work, endure with patience, be strong, do the physical therapy you need to do because the end result will be so much better. God is like that skilled surgeon here reminding his church, telling his church, listen, it's going to be hard, but the end is going to be worth it. So persevere, persevere. God prepares John for the seventh trumpet, but that trumpet doesn't sound yet. In fact, the content of all of chapter 10 and chapter 11 all the way through verse 14 is still technically part of the sixth trumpet of God's judgment upon idolaters. Revelation 11 will reveal, like Revelation 7 did, we'll see some parallels here, what God is doing in the church and through his people in the midst of his judgment on the world until Christ comes again. We've seen what God is doing in, the terms of, in terms of judging idols and idolaters in the world between Christ's ascension as we read of it in the end of the Gospels and between his second coming as we've been waiting for and, and, and urgently and eagerly anticipating these last two millennia of the church age. In that time in between, God is judging the idols and the idolaters of the world, but the question comes at the end of the sixth trumpet, what about the church? What about God's people? Where are we in all of this? So let's continue. Follow along in your Bibles, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. It has been said that Revelation 11 may be the most uh, contentious and feverishly debated text in all of revelation and friends we're not going to solve all those debates today this image of these two witnesses this this vision of two individuals preaching and prophesying with the power of god has has stirred up a lot of different interpretations among uh, the life of the church. And we don't have time this morning to go through all of those. I am going to unfold for you what I think is the best way to understand these two witnesses, which is not as two literal human beings prophesying in the middle of Jerusalem at some point in the future yet to come, but that this is a picture of the invincible and yet dangerously vulnerable people of God in the time between Christ's ascension and his return. These two witnesses, church, are us. Just like in Revelation 7, God is going to show us here in Revelation 11, he's going to show John what is the status of the church between the time of Christ's ascension and his second coming. Here in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, John is given a measuring stick, and he's told to measure the temple of God and those who worship there. This is almost identical, again, to the commission of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 40. I believe that this temple that John sees is not a literal temple. It's not a building of brick and mortar, but a symbolic temple. Remember, apocalyptic literature like Daniel, like Ezekiel, like Zechariah, like Revelation, is heavily symbolic. In my notes, that word is, those two words, heavily symbolic, are in bold and italics. I probably should have underlined them too for emphasis. This book is full of symbols. And I believe that this symbol of this temple that John sees and measures stands as a symbol of God's covenant people. That makes sense though, right? The temple in the Old Testament was a picture. It was the place where God's covenant people went to worship. It was a picture of God's presence among his people. And so now John sees another temple, which is a picture of God's presence among his people. About 25 years before John recorded this vision, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, was destroyed by the Roman general Titus. If we, if we are understanding that John wrote Revelation down, that he had this experience and he wrote it down in the mid to uh, early to mid 90s AD, the temple in Jerusalem had been in, in a state of rubble. It had been destroyed for almost three decades. But even in the years before the temple was destroyed, Christians were already beginning to understand that the temple was no longer this idea of God's temple was no longer a mere building of brick and mortar but the temple of God was a people who composed a temple of living stones listen to how new testament writers apostles inspired by the holy spirit speak about the church 1 corinthians 3:16 and 17 paul says do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is holy and you are that temple paul says Paul writes also to the church in Ephesus, speaking to a group of, of mixed background believers, Jews and Gentiles, people who were allowed in the temple and people who were not allowed to worship in parts of the temple. He says to these mixed ethnic, uh, ethnically mixed follow, group of followers of Jesus, In Ephesians 2, 19 and following, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, Paul says, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And don't forget what the apostle Peter said in his letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. He says to believers in Jesus, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Long before the temple was destroyed in the year AD 70, the church was already understanding that the real the true temple of God was the hearts of those who had trusted Jesus. That that Old Testament temple was a picture, it was a shadow of better things yet to come, like the author of Hebrews says. That Old Testament temple was not the be-all, end-all of God's presence among His people. The heart of the one following Jesus was to be the be-all, end-all of God's presence among His people. And that reality, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, takes root in us. So we're not waiting for another temple to be built. Friends, we are the temple. Scripture says so. And John sees this picture of the temple of God, living souls, stacked upon, built upon one another on Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, perfectly uh, sealed and secured by God in its measurement, now revealed before him. The temple that John measures is the people of God in Revelation 11. Just like the 144,000 sealed sons of Israel in Revelation 7 represent the whole people of God. It's just another picture of all of God's people. And just as the 144,000 are sealed, are marked by God, as belonging to him securely, the measuring of this temple marks it off as God's temple. It's protected by him. But we learn that the outer court of this temple is not measured. God says to John, don't measure it because it will be trampled for 42 months. Now, remember, numbers are important to John. John likes the number 12. He likes the number 7. He likes the number 1,000. He likes the number 10. He likes the number 3. He also likes the number 42 and 1,260 and three and a half. (laughs) Numbers are important to John because numbers are another part of his symbolism. It's another way of, of speaking to the hearts of those who are hearing, who understand the significance of these numbers. He uses numbers to paint pictures. 42 months is the equivalent of three and a half years. Aren't you glad I did the math for you? Which is the same as 1,260 days if you're counting 30-day months. And it's the same as the phrase that will be used later in Revelation and it was used before in the prophet Daniel, time, times, and half a time. One time plus two times plus half a time is three and a half times. So we're going to see more of these numbers appear in the chapters that follow. So it's important for us to understand what John is communicating by these synonymous numbers. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. Now remember, John loves the Old Testament, and here he's pulling from lots of Old Testament references. Many of you who maybe have studied Revelation or studied other apocalyptic or eschatological studies in the past are probably hearing echoes uh, from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, where Daniel has a prophecy, a word from the Lord about a period of hardship for God's people that takes place over the course of 70 weeks of seven years. And in the 70th week of seven years, some stuff will happen happen and for half of that week, three and a half days or three and a half years, depending on how you're understanding, the weeks of years, there's trial for God's people. But also, did you know that the time of Elijah's ministry from 1st and 2nd Kings was often thought to be about forty-two months, three and a half years? Israel when they were delivered from, the slave, from slavery in Egypt, and before they entered into the promised land, there was that period of wandering in the wilderness before that disobedient generation died off and an obedient generation could move forward as God's people moving into Canaan. Do you know how many encampments Israel had in the wilderness? Numbers 33 tells us 42. 42 encampments. Also, when we go, not from the Old Testament, but now to the New, but drawing on the Old Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, he gives us a genealogy of Jesus. He tells us the lineage of how Jesus came to be. And he starts with Abraham and he ends with Jesus. And he tells us that from Abraham to David, there were 14 generations. From David to the time of the exile in Babylon, there were 14 generations. And from the return to, uh, and from the exile until the birth of Jesus, there were 14 generations. Do you know what 14 plus 14 plus 14 equals? Forty-two. Here's the kicker though. Matthew takes people out. He excludes generations. There were probably more than 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So Matthew is communicating something different than than just the literal progression or the literal lineage uh, from Abraham to Jesus. All of this, this, uh, this talk about 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, a time, times, and half a time, I think is a way, is John's way of describing a fullness of time. A fullness of time. For a full period of time, as long as God's ordained time will be, the church will experience, his people will experience hardship until he brings his kingdom. Elijah, the prophet, ministered for the fullness of time that God had ordained for him to minister. Israel wandered in the wilderness for a fullness of time, which happened to be 42 months, but a fullness of time until that disobedient generation had passed and a generation ready to obey the Lord was ready to go in. There was a fullness of time between the promise to Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 12 and the birth of Jesus. All, how, how long is 42 months? As long as God needs it to be to do exactly his purposes. Now this outer court of God's people The temple that's not measured because it's going to be trampled for how long? 42 months. For a fullness of time, the outer court of God's people will experience trampling and tribulation, difficulty as his people. Friends, this is a promise of sorts that in the intervening time until Christ returns in power and victory and glory, that his church will be the recipients of difficulty. For a full period of time, we will be the objects of oppression and abuse even death from the unbelieving world. How long? As long as God needs to, to fulfill his purposes. But at the same time, the fact that his temple is measured, his temple is is measured, means that it is ultimately secure, which is the same message that we get from the identity and the ministry of the two witnesses. God perfectly preserves his people in the midst of tribulation to do what he needs them to do. So from verses 3 to 13 of chapter 11, we move from the picture of the temple now to a picture of these two witnesses. We hear about the identity and the work of these two preachers of the gospel. Now, just as 144,000 sealed sons of Israel in Revelation 7, we saw are also the great multi-ethnic multitude that no one could number. John hears about 144,000, but he sees a great multi-ethnic multitude. Now, John sees a temple and then he sees two witnesses, which is to say these two visions, these two pictures of God's people, we should, we should view them in tandem. These are not competing images, but two symbols for the same uh, object, which is God's people. The temple and the two witnesses are twin pictures of the church. We read about these two witnesses that there are two of them. That's the first thing we know about them. Why, why the number two? Why not one? Why not 40? Why not 12, John? You seem to like all those numbers too. There are two witnesses because all throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are told that charges against someone, a judgment against someone is only valid if it comes from at least two witnesses. These witnesses are dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a picture of repentance. This is to say their message is a message of repentance. It's a call to those who are listening to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Friends, a message clothed in sackcloth was the message of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus begins his ministry by giving a call to people to repent. Jesus begins his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All through his ministry, he's calling people to turn from sin and trust in the Lord. And this is the same message of the church that it's proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 at the first Christian sermon at Pentecost by Peter there in the middle of Jerusalem as he shows those Jews who are gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost that Jesus whom they crucified just uh, several weeks before had been raised from the dead as God's Messiah. He shows them by the scriptures that Jesus is the only Savior of his people and of the world. And those who are hearing this who realize we, we just crucified the Messiah and he was raised again, what do we do? They ask Peter, what do we do if Jesus is this Messiah? And his message is the same as Jesus' at the beginning of his ministry. He says, Repent. If you recognize that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God's ordained servant to bring about the salvation of the nations who died for sins and was raised from the dead, your response is repent repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ peter says for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth because their message is a message of repentance but this message of repentance is not a beleaguered one it's not a dire one it's not a sad one it's a call to receive the blessing of god It is not, friends, a curse to call a sinful world, a lost world, a world running headlong into destruction away from God. It is not a a bad thing or a sad thing or a curse to say to them, turn, turn to the Lord because he's ready to receive you. His arms are open wide all the time for people to turn to him, to turn from their sin, to trust in his son, to be renewed in heart and soul and mind and strength so that they might live out their God-designed purpose in this world, which as image bearers of God is to love and worship and adore him forever. It is not a curse to call people to repent. This is the message of the two witnesses. These two witnesses are also called two olive trees and two lampstands. The reference to two olive trees is certainly an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4, another Old Testament prophet, where there Zechariah is speaking about these two figures who returned from the Babylonian exile to Judah in the days of the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. These two figures, Joshua and Zerubbabel, this priestly and kingly figure who, who returned from the Babylonian exile, these two in Zechariah 4 are called olive trees, who, who, whose oil lights the lampstand of the Lord. And the reference to lampstands is already familiar to us from the context of Revelation, because the Son of Man, as He appears to John in Revelation 1, is surrounded by seven lampstands, which are the churches. These two witnesses have the power of fire that consumes their foes and power to shut the sky and to turn water to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. What does that sound like? So many Old Testament prophets, right? The picture here images for us the ministry specifically of Elijah and Moses. Elijah who called fire down from heaven and and Moses who administered plagues from heaven against the enemies of God. All of this is to say that the witness of the church in the world is to proclaim the word of God. Fire comes out of their mouths. This is not a, a picture of human blow torches. This is a picture of a faithful church calling people to repent whose words, whose, the gospel that comes out of their mouth, simultaneously consumes those whose hearts are hardened against God and purifies those who are ready to be made holy by God's word. Proclamation of the true gospel is a plague of heavenly judgment upon those who don't listen, and it is a blessing from the Lord that inspires those who have trusted Jesus to continue on in faithful perseverance. Now, these two witnesses who are the church, who are us, we need to see ourselves in the picture of these two witnesses. When their testimony is finished, the witnesses are conquered and killed by the beast. Now, the beast is identified as the one who holds the key to the abyss. This is the same uh, uh, one that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. This beast is Satan. And this beast will be mentioned in more detail in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. So hold on, we'll get there. But this beast is allowed to war, to wage war against the saints of God and even to cause them to die. And he humiliates them by not allowing their bodies to be buried. This is figurative imagery, I believe, for the way that Satan has appeared to have conquered the martyrs of Christian history and the unnamed martyrs for Christ in the world today. While many look on their often humiliated bodies, Satan believes he has won. Satan believes when saints die for the faith that he has defeated them. He has silenced a voice for the gospel. Even the watching world will celebrate their death in the same way that Non-believers and powerful persons rejoice when gospel voices are silenced, that the city that they preach in is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom in Egypt and is also identified as the place where Christ was crucified is to say that there is no safe place in this world for God's people. If Jerusalem can be equated with the immorality of Sodom and the oppression and slavery of Egypt, where can the church be safe from the attacks of the enemy? Nowhere. Nowhere. Everywhere the church goes, they will be the object of scorn and derision and abuse and oppression and even execution from the unbelieving world. Finally, we read that after a period of public humiliation, there is a breath of life from God that resurrects these witnesses as they are taken to heaven in a cloud. Now, beside this imagery having much correlation with Jesus' own life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension, it also invokes imagery from Ezekiel 37, verse 10, where there the breath of God brings a valley of dry bones to life and strengthen bodies. Friends, this picture of these witnesses being raised from the dead and, and brought to God in a cloud is a picture, I believe, certainly of the final resurrection of believers to eternal life in the presence of God. If these witnesses are us, here's what we can expect. To live out a calling of preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. We can expect to to be killed like our Lord was publicly. We can expect to be humiliated like our Lord was publicly. And we can expect to be raised in power and glory after a period of time like our Lord was. And to be recognized by so many others. Listen. Listen. I know Revelation has been understood many different ways. I think this is the best, the most clear way to understand the symbols that John is utilizing here in Revelation 11, to understand that he's not talking about two people off in the future that we'll all watch on YouTube preaching in Jerusalem. He's talking about us today. But whether or not we agree on the identity of these witnesses doesn't necessarily change the meaning of their inclusion in John's vision. Regardless of how we identify these uh, uh, two witnesses, Their presence in Revelation declares to us that God protects the witness of his people until it is complete, either individually or corporately. And though his people are vulnerable to attack from satanic forces, they are ultimately preserved and vindicated at the resurrection. When the witnesses finish their work, we read there's a great earthquake, destroying part of the city, killing many within it. I think we're meant to read this in tandem with the sixth, sixth seal uh, as it's opened in Revelation 6. This is God's final wrath against sin at the conclusion of the church's ministry. It's terrifying because God is no longer limiting. He's no longer mitigating the effects of his judgment. And the people glorify God, uh, not out of hearts of worship, but out of sheer inability to do anything else when the Lord arrives in the fullness of his power. These two witnesses are a picture of the perfectly secure in the hand of God and yet dangerously vulnerable people of God all through history until Christ returns again. In light of the, what these two witnesses teach us this morning, church, you who are followers of Jesus, receive and live your divine call to preach the gospel. If these two witnesses are telling us as the church what we're supposed to do, then we need to receive and to live out our divine call to preach the gospel. Understand by the message of Revelation that until Christ comes in power and in glory, we have not been called to protect a way of life, but to proclaim the gospel. We have not been called to fence ourselves off from spiritual enemies, but to feverishly call to those who are separated from God. We are not called to pride ourselves on our righteousness, but to plead with the lost for their repentance. We are not called to wax eloquent in the comfort of the church house, but to be bold and winsome and full of hope in Jesus Christ in the streets and on dirt trails in the city and in the jungle, in the slums and in the suburbs. We have not been called to live for the glory of our name, but to live and to die for the glory of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, when you said, I want to follow Jesus, this is what you signed up for. And in, and in case you want out, here's your exit ramp. Seriously. If you thought following Jesus was going to be all bubblegum and fairy tales and lollipops and happy sing-song dances down the road, you missed it. Jesus was hated by the world. Why? Because he told the sinful world, repent. There is hope and forgiveness and grace from God if you turn from your sin to receive him. The message that Jesus preached has not changed for the church. The message that we preach to the world is repent. And what did did Jesus get for preaching a gospel of repentance? Public crucifixion, humiliation, death, naked on a cross in front of everybody to see. Friends, why should we expect much better than our Savior? Jesus himself said in John's gospel, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me long before they hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. When you said, I want to follow Jesus... When you said, Christ is Lord, my life is His, I'm turning from my sin to receive forgiveness through His death in my place, His resurrection from the dead, this is what you signed up for, a life of proclaiming repentance to a lot of people who won't want to hear it and only want to humiliate you for it. You signed up for a life given in service to King Jesus who rescued you from sin and who rescued you from death, that you might make his name and the hope of his gospel known. And yes, that you might even die doing it. That's what we signed up for. That's what the two witnesses tell us. This is the the church, friends. They're going to preach repentance to a world that doesn't want to hear it and will rejoice when we're dead in the streets for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not me saying that everyone in the world is antagonistic toward Christians. We live in a culture and a society in a day and age where that's not necessarily quite the case. But in some places, it certainly feels like the temperature is rising. There are certain, certainly corners of the world where people are losing their lives for Christ, for this message of repentance and faith in Christ, for salvation. But friends, this is what we signed up for. How dare we think God would call us to anything easier? He's promised that we wouldn't face it. So friend, if you don't want to be a Christian who gives their life in proclaiming repentance and faith in Jesus for the salvation of sin and forgiveness uh, 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 of those who have rebelled against God and his holy character, walk away now. This is your chance to walk away. But if you don't want to walk away, if you still want to follow Jesus, maybe we all need to, myself included, repent of of our cowardice and repent of our slackness in proclaiming with hope and also with severity the gospel of the kingdom. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Listen, folks, this cuts me just as deep, maybe deeper than it does you. Do you know why? Because it's really easy to stand in this place, on this platform, and preach the gospel with holy fire and conviction on a Sunday morning to a friendly audience. It's really easy to preach this message to people who will say, amen. Do you know what's a lot harder to do? To preach this message with compassion, with winsomeness, with with hope and joy in my voice to my neighbor across the street who I've lived across the street from for four years, but I still can't remember his name, much less know if he follows Jesus. That's a lot harder to do. But Jesus hasn't called me just to preach this gospel of repentance and faith in Christ for salvation, just to people who enjoy hearing it. And friends, he hasn't called you to that either. He hasn't called a one of us to sit in our holy huddles on Sunday morning in small groups and only talk about the gospel there. He's intended for those places to be training rooms, boot camps, opportunities for us to prepare our our, our hearts and steel our stomachs for taking the gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Church, receive and live your call. If you have followed Jesus to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ for salvation to the world, this is us. These two witnesses are us. This is the life that we can expect to live. How dare we think that we could rise above or have it any easier than Christ who died for our sins. But that's not how John ends this section. He goes on to tell us about the seventh trumpet. Scott already read these verses for us. You can review them in your Bibles. In Revelation eleven fifteen 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet sounds and God's kingdom comes. And we close here with, with what, what Scott read at the start and with what was promised by that mighty angel in chapter 10. When the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no more delay. After John relates to us what the calling and the work of the church will be until Christ returns in the picture of this temple and these two witnesses, he tells us about the last trumpet to sound. And when it sounds, that trumpet inspires the praise of those in the heavenly throne room of God. Shouts ring out from those 24 elders, those angelic beings in God's throne room. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This indicates that the final trumpet marks the beginning of the eternal state. The final trumpet is a preview of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem where God dwells with his people that comes to us in in grand detail in Revelation 21 and 22. God's dwelling place is with man. His throne is the center of the new creation. In heaven, a song is sung. We read it in verses 17 and 18. God is reigning. The wicked have been judged. God's people are rewarded for their endurance. Glory to the king. And John sees another temple opened. This heavenly temple that he sees opened in heaven stands as a symbol of God opening to all of his redeemed saints total and unfettered access to his presence. Again, this is nothing short of the kind of imagery of God's uninhibited presence with his people in the new creation. We'll get there in a few weeks at the end of Revelation. It just seems that this is a preview of that fuller description that, that's coming. It's like John is, is telling us, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're going to get to the really good stuff, and the good stuff is coming. There's a little bit more uh, uh, judgment and, and stuff that we need to understand about what God's doing in the world before we get to the end of Revelation. But here at the seventh trumpet, he's saying, Church, lift your heads, lift your voices. Good things are coming. In the middle of trouble, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of watching your friend like Antipas die in the streets of your city, there's reason to rejoice because a trumpet is going to sound. And on that day, God will bring his kingdom in full. Knowing, friends, that we live in a world that might like to put some of us to death one day and in some corners of the world are putting those various anonymous Antipases to death in the street. What are we to do? What are we to do? The seventh trumpet reveals to us and teaches us that we can confront today's troubles with songs of tomorrow's praise. When that seventh trumpet blows in John's vision, he sees the universe erupting in worship of God, praise to God, glorying in his presence, taking joy and delight in all that he has done. And these are people that John is writing to who watched their friend Antipas be publicly murdered. And John says, I know you're troubled today. Confront today's troubles with songs of tomorrow's praise. How are the saints to endure the kind of hardship that they faced under the reign of wicked Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian? How are Christians to persevere in faith when wars raged all around them and plagues and sickness swept through their land? How are we today to persist in winsome sharing of the gospel when it seems that our culture only cares to divide over who holds the keys to the future of the nation? How do we overcome? How do we confront today's troubles? We sing. We sing. We sing. We sing about the Lord of life who gave himself for our sins and was raised for our justification. We sing about the King of kings who will one day receive glory from every person great and small. We sing about the Prince of Peace who will turn swords into plowshares. We sing about the Lamb who will wipe every tear from our eyes. We sing about the only Son of God whose ministry of reconciliation will one day result in his making his eternal home with his blood-bought bride. Am I talking to Christians today? We sing songs from the words of Revelation that inspire us to remember that God is working the great sacrifice of his people to result in great glory to his name. When our brother, Faithful Antipas, is killed in the streets, we comfort our hearts. We comfort today's troubles with songs of tomorrow's promise, songs of God's glory. We sing songs like, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We sing songs like, It is well with my soul. We sing songs like, I will follow you. Even to my death, I will follow you. We sing songs like, All glory be to Christ whose last verse and chorus go this way. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us. He'll be our steadfast light, and we shall e'er his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule, his reign, we'll ever sing. All glory be to Christ. As the church endures persecution and hardship and oppression and hate from the world, which these two witnesses show us, we certainly will. Satan loves to kill us in the street and laugh over our dead bodies. What do we do in response to that? Do we take up arms and fight against the forces of this world? Do we, do we stock our bunker with all sorts of emergency foodstuffs and AAR-15s and plenty of rounds of ammunition to make it through the zombie apocalypse? When the world hates us, do we stand in defiance against it and say, no, you die, you go away? No, we sing. We sing. And not just any song. We sing songs of praise to God who is coming again to bring His kingdom, to consummate it, to make it right, to bring us to be with Him forever. We confront today's troubles with songs of tomorrow's praise, with songs of tomorrow's purpose. Church, get used to singing. Get used to singing. Because there was coming a day where you won't be able to do anything but, and it's going to be awesome. Are you troubled today? Are you sincerely worried about your life? Do the cares of this world, the concerns of this world, do they seem to choke out your faith day by day? Let me invite you. Start singing. Start singing. Christians start singing songs of hope of tomorrow. When Christ will come and make his home with us, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, where death and sorrow will be no more and there will only be glory in the presence of our king. Sing songs to Jesus. Dear friend, do you know this Jesus yet? Do you know this hope? Do do, do you have hope for the future? The way that Revelation speaks to the church, have hope for the future? If not yet, you can have it in the person of Jesus Christ. He who died on the cross to pay for your sins, who was raised from the dead to make you right with God, who calls everyone who hears the message to turn from sin and self and doing life your own way, the way you want, how you want, where you want, with whom you want, and give it all over to God. Give it all over to Jesus as the risen King of kings, Lord of lords, to say, my life is yours. Make me what you want me to be. Friend, if you need to know that Jesus today, you can. And here's my invitation to you. In a moment, we're gonna dismiss. Many of us are gonna go to small groups. I'm gonna hang out right here. If you need to know this Jesus today, if you need to hope, know the hope that Revelation gives to the church today because you don't have any, you come talk to me this morning. Let's go through the scriptures together. I'll show you how you can have hope and confidence of forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God by trusting in Jesus. But don't delay. Let today be the day of salvation. I don't know how many tomorrows we'll have. You don't know how many tomorrows you'll have make today the day of salvation for you. God is opening wide his arms. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary weary and heavy heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls sinners who know that they need salvation to come to him, and he'll give them rest and hope for a future. Christian, we will have trouble in this world, but know that God is working the great sacrifice of his people to result in the great praise and glory of his name in eternity. Let's get used to singing.